0: Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Meg Weber. She writes memoir about sex, grief, love, family, therapy, and tangled relationships. She is a queer writer and a mental health therapist who specializes in gender and sexuality. Her debut memoir, A Year of Mr. Lucky, launched in February of 2021, and she is at work on her second memoir. She lives in a suburb of Portland, Oregon with her wife, her teenager, a therapy labradoodle named Portland, and two cats. Welcome, Meg. Thank you, Ronit. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm really happy that you're here and there's so much I want to cover and it's going to be hard for me to contain myself. But first I do, I do want to really thank you because we were in touch a little while ago and there's so, so many different aspects of your memoir and your experience that I think will be really helpful to listeners. But before we get started with the nitty gritty of your memoir, I'm curious what made you decide to write it?
1: You know, when I was having the experiences that, that it became this book, I just had a feeling I've been a writer my whole life and publishing a memoir has always been a goal of mine. Hmm. And I just knew that the experiences that I was having and the way they were unfolding, I thought it would make a really interesting book. Hmm. And I thought that it would be something that people would be interested in reading about. I thought that both he and I made fairly compelling characters in this book. (laughs) And I appreciated the chemistry that he and I had. And I just thought that other people might too. And I thought it was a relatable story.
0: So then when you were going through the experience, were you already writing it in your head? That's a good question. So part of how I processed
1: everything that was happening in our relationship, um, not only am I a writer, but I'm also a mental health therapist, as you mentioned. So Mm. processing is a big thing that I do. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I tried to integrate and make sense of everything happening in my connection with him was to write about it. And mm-hmm. so I was already writing both in like a journaling format. I was keeping a private blog actually to keep track of what was happening for me. And mm-hmm. then he and I wrote back and forth to each other, which was part of the mm-hmm. the structure of the book that was really important to me. So yeah, I was writing it along the way even before I really knew I was gonna turn it into a book.
0: Mm, okay. And and so for people who have not read your book yet or who want to know more about it, can you share a little bit, you can take a little time and explain what it what it covers? Absolutely. So this is a book that is a
1: part of my life when I was about 40 years old. I had recently divorced from my long term partner. We are co-parents, we continue to co-parent our child really closely and on really good terms, but we had ended our 14 year relationship. And so I was newly single and I, was starting to date again, and I met this man online, Uh, I call him Mr. Lucky, and (laughs) it was a relationship that was supposed to just be really fun and no strings attached and casual, and as it turns out, I'm not capable of that, (laughs) so um, it didn't stay in that realm, and the relationship also involves BDSM or kink, so that Mm -hmm. was part of what he and I were both seeking. And so that's part of how our relationship developed and and what it involved as well. The other sort of underlying thread in this story is that during the time that this was happening, one of my siblings died by suicide. Hmm. What happened with my sister's death, it happened during this time frame, And when I was first writing the book, I knew I had to address it somehow. But Mm -hmm. I sort of just dropped it in there and then kept going. And all Mm -hmm. the writing feedback I got from some of the amazing authors that I got to work with as
0: I created this book were really clear to say it doesn't work that way. You mentioned that Lydia Yuknovich was kind of said that to you, that you can't just do that.
1: Right. And if Lydia says you can't just do something, you probably don't do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's how I experienced that. And so but she was right and and I it really made the book more personal mm-hmm. for me to go back and include not just more story about my sister's death but about my sister and my relationship with her and my relationship to my family in general because mm-hmm. that definitely played a part in the relationship that I built with Mr. Lucky. And it helped yeah. me see that I had to bring more of me into that to have it be relevant.
0: So, well, first, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. I wonder about that. Did you think, so how long after this had happened, did you begin writing in earnest, writing the memoir?
1: That's a good question. After my sister's death or after the relationship? The
0: relationship, when it had ended.
1: You know, by the time the relationship ended, I already knew it was a book
0: Mm. or I hoped Mm -hmm. it would be a book. So
1: it was early on in the relationship that I was thinking, I should probably write about some of this. And the Mm -hmm. more I did that, I was also taking online writing classes Mm -hmm. and this was the material I was generating. So I had decided, okay, I think it's going to be a book, but it took a total of six years to mm. write and edit and re-edit and rewrite this book. So mm. it ended up, I think, coming out into the world about five years after my relationship with him ended.
0: And and during the relationship was when you lost your sister? It was. Right. And so I, I am really interested in this idea of, would you say you were kind of compartmentalizing your story Absolutely. Do you know why you thought you needed to?
1: I felt like I needed to compartmentalize because I didn't think that I knew how to recover from my sister's death. Mm -hmm. And I'd had a broken heart before I'd been in relationships that fell apart or weren't what I imagined them to be. And so I kept trying to steer my story and my experience into that realm i would go to Mm. therapy which i talk about in the book and i would talk endlessly about mr lucky and my relationship Mm -hmm. with him and my therapist who i adore would just look at me and she would say what else do you think we should be paying attention to i think there's other really big things Mm. happening for you and i I would do my best to steer away from that because the loss of my sister was so enormous. Mm. I wasn't sure I knew how to come back from that.
0: It's it's interesting because I wonder if, had you not been writing this memoir, um, A Year of Mr. Lucky, maybe at some point in the future you would write about your sister. And so I wonder if there was a part of you that thought, well, I'll do that later. I'm nowhere near being able to even address this right now.
1: I think that that is true. That's a really good insight. I definitely didn't feel like I knew how to write about my sister's death. And in fact, the next memoir that I'm working on is about the losses that I've experienced, including mm-hmm. my sister. Um, both my parents are gone now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the pieces that I'm trying to work with for the new memoir are about those experiences of loss mm-hmm. and the grief and and how different each of those experiences of grief are. And it's hard to write about.
0: (laughs) Do you think that people need space between events and processing them in a memoir? You know, that's
1: a good question. And that's something I've talked about with some of the, the writing mentors that I have. I think most specifically about Ariel Gore, mm-hmm. um, who has written several memoirs. And she wrote one of my favorite memoirs, which is called The End of Eve. And mm-hmm. it's about her mother dying. And she got that advice from several people. Oh, you can't write about that yet. You can't write about it as it's happening. You have to wait. Mm-hmm. And she didn't take that advice. And she wrote that book while it was happening and shortly after. And I think that in some respects, having space to process a big experience like that can be helpful. I also, part of what I appreciate about memoir is sometimes the immediacy and the fact that we get brought right into what's happening for someone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that happens when you haven't figured it all out yet or moved through it.
0: Mm-hmm. I see both of those sides. I definitely do. and And it makes me rethink what my perspective on space and writing about those events was would be like, because I do think you can probably tap into some very raw and immediate, interactions with your experience if you write immediately, right? Like, I think yes. you can probably get into some stuff that you might not be able to later. And of course, you, you're you the writer, the memoirist, you can come out and you can shape it all different ways. So do you think that when you wrote A Year of Mr. Lucky, you were in conversation with the loss of your sister And then you just deepened that within the book? Or how did you end up changing your writing once you got that advice from your mentors?
1: That's a really beautiful question. I think that I was in relationship with that loss. And I think that in the writing of the book, because the whole first probably three drafts of the book did not have the depth of the storyline about my sister and my relationship with her. and. And also going back a little bit to what you were saying about the timing and the, what we were talking about, about immediacy, the beautiful and painful thing about writing a book like this is that I got to write it while it was happening or shortly after, but then I had to go back and edit it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was a, a challenge, but it also, once I had more distance and had figured out that I needed to and wanted to include more about my sister, it helped me step away from the obsession with Mm. him and with that relationship. And it gave me a clearer eye for not everything that happened in that relationship with him needed to be in this book.
0: Mm. Whereas
1: at the moment when I was writing it, every bit of it felt relevant and important and essential Mm -hmm. And then by the time four years had gone by or five years had gone by and I was working with the editor on the final bits, I wasn't so attached. I was Mm -hmm. willing to say, okay, those eight pages of email can go, (laughs) I don't need them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the beginning, I wasn't willing to let them go.
0: I totally feel that time helps me so much. A friend of mine who writes mostly fiction but across, you know, other genres too, Jennifer Fliss, she she did say recently that time is the best editor, and I think it's amazing how much clarity I get when I give something some space and come back to it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And to me that makes it seem even more like writing and editing is a both and experience. Mm-hmm. We want the rawness, we want that immediate reaction and experience. And then we want time to help us know how to shape it and what to do with it so that it comes out as the most powerful, accessible bit of writing that we can put in the world.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really validating because writing can be so lonesome. It challenges you on so many levels, and and makes you think about so many aspects of yourself and your. At least for me, like it, your talent and what you have to offer, and your own your own emotions and how you process them. And I think it's really validating to know that everything you write is useful. It's going somewhere, even mm-hmm. though it won't all end up in the final. That doesn't mean that it's not valid. It's just what are you going to mold into the narrative that you can tell most powerfully.
1: Exactly. I totally agree.
0: Yeah. So, what is it like writing a memoir with graphic alternative sexuality, BDSM kink in it and then coming out about that to your friends and family and clients as the book is published?
1: Right. It was an adventure for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> had um, they known had they known that you were exploring BDSM? You know, uh, most of my friends did know that
1: about me. Uh, Most of my siblings did not. It was something I had talked about with my sister who died, um, Mm. but it wasn't something we talked about in detail. So it was in, in many ways, it was an entirely different coming out process. And so while my siblings or my cousins were excited for me or my friends about publishing a book, they knew I'm a writer, they they knew that this was something that was important to me. It was also having several awkward conversations about, mm. yes, I'm excited to publish this book. And here's what you should know about it if you want to support me, if you mm. want to read it. And in most of those conversations, I was kind of finding a balance of thank you for your excitement and your support. I really appreciate it. Please don't read my book, (laughs) which is a really weird thing to say when you publish your first book and you want the whole world to read it, Um, to want the whole world except the people that are close to you to read it. (laughs) That's something that I know lots of memoirists deal with. And I had an interesting conversation. I have another sister besides the one who died, and we have worked really hard to build our relationship. And as I was writing this, she really wanted to support me. And I ended up having some difficult conversations with her about whether or not to use our sister's real name in Mm -hmm. my book. And she thought that she might need to read the book to see if you know what that would sound like and so i said here you go i sent her a copy of the manuscript and it was difficult for her Mm -hmm. it was difficult for her she got a little bit of the way through it and she said your writing is beautiful it's nothing about that it's just it was too difficult for me to read and i i think what was between the lines there was it's hard to read graphic details about a sibling Mm -hmm. and their sex life. And particularly Mm -hmm. some of the, the things that Mr. Lucky and I were doing, it just didn't feel comfortable for her to read. Sure.
0: How did that make you feel that she couldn't finish it?
1: I was a little bit sad, but also I completely understood and respected where she was coming from. Mm. I've never been in that same situation Mm -hmm. because I'm the one in my family that does stuff like this. (laughs) So (laughs) I haven't had that same opportunity. And so I couldn't relate in that way. But I understood. I know that kink is not for everyone and that reading that about somebody you're close to and especially I'm the baby in my family. I'm the Mm. littlest sister. And Mm -hmm. so I
0: think that there was also an element of that too. Mm hmm. That was hard for her like protectiveness. And well, it's true, though, that is an interesting it's hard. Okay, so one of the members of my family told when I shared my memoir with them was that it was hard to read about themselves as a character in someone else's book in someone Mm -hmm. else's story. And so I, I think there's a lot of fraught territory when it comes to sharing our personal stories with family and people who are close to us. And did you end up, by the way, using your sister's real name? I did. There Mm -hmm. are two
1: people in the book who um, were close to me that have died, my sister being one of them and one of my best friends who died when we were 24. Mm. And I mentioned both of them uh, using their real name. Mm. And that also related for me to my question of was I going to publish this memoir under my real name, Mm. which was a big consideration for me. And I ultimately decided that I would publish Mm -hmm. it under my name, which was also part of what led to the conversations I had with my siblings.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, share that name. So yes, (laughs) no, exactly. And, and it is, this question comes up a lot. I mean, I see it in writing groups a lot when people are writing memoir, how do you share stories about the most intimate parts of your life and also shared experiences when when those people are still alive and you know when it will affect them? And so the idea of using different names or publishing under a pen name must come into play. And I have talked to memoirists, I don't know if you have, who have thought they need to wait with their story until the people concerned are no longer living.
1: I have had that conversation with people as well. And I really went back and forth about how to do that with this book. I knew that with my sister being gone, I felt I had some freedom to talk about her experiences Mm -hmm. as they related to my relationship with her. And I will admit that I felt some relief that by the time this book was coming into existence, my parents were gone. I miss them terribly. I wish they were here, but I didn't need to have that conversation with them about this book in particular. And that was a relief for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, this is your experience. This is what you want to add to the world and it's, it's difficult to decide what effect that's going to have. Did you have any fallout that you didn't expect or that you, you, was there anything that happened when the book came out that made you doubt or regret anything? No. I was mm-hmm. very
1: fortunate. I, mm-hmm. My siblings were all very warm and supportive of me. Um, two of my siblings came to my book launch and hmm. listened to me read from the book and talk about it. And that meant the world to me. And the rest of my siblings all sent me hearty congratulations and said that they were very excited for me. Mm-hmm. And that meant a lot that they could find a way to celebrate me without feeling like they had to compromise what felt comfortable to them. And the Mm -hmm. same was true with my closest cousins. That you know, many of them said, Hey, congratulations, I'm not gonna read it. I'm really happy for you. And that was really the best of all worlds for
0: me. Right, right, isn't it? It's like, okay, I know this is out in the world, I'm going to avoid it. I support you. Congratulations. You don't have to worry about me or my feelings, right? Exactly. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, do you do you have any advice for writers in your position that were in your position memoirists who are still struggling with this about whether or not to share, you know, and also the idea of whether or not you need to get permission from other parties, you know, to publish the memoir, if you can address that at all.
1: Absolutely. I think, uh, and this kind of relates to other things we might talk about too, Mm -hmm. just about ideas for memoirists in general. I think the most important thing is to write what you need to write write it for you, get it out of you so that then it's on the page or on the computer and you can do something with it. And try to do that before all the fears about what everybody else is going to think or say get in the way. Because the most important thing is that we write it. And then in terms of getting permission or how to handle those things, I encourage people to look at what are the consequences of me telling my story in this way who might it affect what's my relationship with those people what do i want it to be and some of that we have to do on an individual basis mm-hmm. in terms of permission at least in my case yeah, i published a year of mr lucky with a really small press and i needed according to the editor before she would publish this book after she accepted it and she was, you know, excited to work with me, she said, I need his permission. Mm -hmm. I need him to read it and to sign off on that. He is not going to sue me Mm -hmm. (laughs) basically Mm -hmm. because of the, how he is represented in this book. And Hmm. that was a little bit challenging for me because I I didn't know what he would think. Part of why I wanted to write the book, including our email correspondence, is because I wanted him to get to create himself as a character, just exactly the way he did in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't want to have to
0: rewrite him. Mm. Is (laughs) that why you use the epistolary structure? It is. Mm-hmm. It,
1: and also because I really enjoyed the connection that he and I had in the mm-hmm. emails. And mm-hmm. I thought that it's a really intimate way for a reader to get to know characters as they yeah. are getting to know each other. And, uh, you know, who doesn't want to read intimate emails between people? <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. But I was excited that I didn't have to write my version of him. And I did write a lot about my version of him. And I was worried that, you know, it didn't paint him in the best light in many ways. Mm-hmm. And that's a subjective experience. But I also didn't want myself or the publisher to get sued. And I wanted sure. my book in the world. So, and that experience actually went better than I expected. Really? I reached out to him for once he was timely in his response to me, <laughs> which was a theme in the book that he was not. and he read it. And he said very complimentary, positive things about it. He did ask me to disguise him a little bit better, which I'll admit in early drafts, I probably didn't work as hard as I could have to. <laughs> I mean, nobody was going to be able to show up on his doorstep. But yeah, um, I so he did ask me to edit some details about his life, which I did.
0: And he was supportive of it. That's so great. What do you think you would have done if he had said he wasn't supportive? You know, I knew early
1: on, we had had an exchange where I asked for his permission to use his emails long before I found a publisher or I was at that stage. So I knew that it was not out of the realm of possibility with him. Mm. Um, If he had come back and said, I need you to tear out these things and completely change the narrative. I would have been crushed Mm -hmm. because I had spent so much time and energy editing and getting this story the way that I wanted it and telling it true. Mm -hmm. I really believe the story tells that I tell is a true account of our connection. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to, to disappear.
0: Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So, so I know that we talked a little bit about some areas we might cover in the interview, and I want to make sure we get to them. So I'm thinking we might do sort of like a, a little more of a speed round toward the end of this. But there is one that you can spend a little more time on, which is when when you're writing memoir, how do you personally balance self reflection with action and scene? What's your hack for that? Or how did you find your balance for that? You're writing another memoir right now. So I'm sure it's really on your mind it is it definitely is with this
1: book in particular again because of the epistolary structure and the fact of he and i didn't get to see each other in person very often that really helped me find that balance between self-reflection and action and scene he and i in the course of this book spent time in in person together, I think a total of seven times Mm -hmm. over a year and a half-ish. And so for me, it was really important that every time he and I were in the same place, that those were the times that were full of action and scene and physical details because so much of the rest of it happened at my computer or his. Mm. And so to me, and then all my self-reflection and pondering and processing about what we were doing. And so that being able to write sort of cinematic scenes of when we were together helped me with that structure in this book. I feel like Um, that would be
0: so freeing in a way because you kind of already know where you're going to have to put in the hard scene work. Right, exactly. And I was also
1: surprised and I got a lot of feedback about the fact that because so much of it happened in my brain and on the computer, that any other opportunity where I was in person with somebody, I needed to make those cinematic as well. So that's Mm -hmm. why some of the therapy scenes where I'm in therapy and talking to Gail. That's why some of those are more active and cinematic as well.
0: Ah, yeah. And this is a really good reminder, too, that, you know, I do think people love to read scenes. And I I have talked about this before on the podcast, which is that, well, for me, it's easy for me not to write a scene. It's work. It's definitely work for me to write a scene. I can talk all day, you know, and mm-hmm. and do exposition all day. <laughs> but if you tell me to write a scene, I actually have to settle down, dig deep, and and write that. And it takes it takes a more of an effort for me. Absolutely,
1: and it does for me too. And that relates to one of the other questions we thought we might talk mm-hmm. about, which is what part of memoir is the hardest for me to write.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think as odd as this is going to sound, given the book that I wrote that is so graphic and personal, it is often hard for me to embody myself in the book, to Mm. write myself as a person who moves through the world, not just with my nervous system and my brain, but Mm. with a body, and put myself in physical spaces, I can write about relationship all day long. But (laughs) writing about me as an individual and how I fit into these relationships, that part can be really
0: challenging. So how do you overcome that? Lots of responding
1: well to editing feedback. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: So Um, what would that look like, Meg? Would people say, I don't, like, what would be something, I don't want to put words into your mouth. What would be something you'd get back in a note that would make you, make it clear to you that this issue is coming up in the writing?
1: I often hear from people that are reading my writing and offering feedback, I hear, where are you, <laughs> where are you in physical space? What are you, what do you look like in this moment? What's happening in your body in this moment, which mm. again, I wrote really graphic sex scenes in here yeah. where I'm describing what's happening to my body. But when I'm not writing those types of scenes, it's difficult for me to include myself in that way and so then i have to do the work of finding where i was in my body in
0: those scenes and and recreating them and putting them on the page do you have a tip for other memoirists who might be struggling with this practice <laughs>
1: practice doing it over and over and over again and i think part of it too is is leaning away from the things that are comfortable. Like I said, I can process and write about relationship all day long, Mm -hmm. but it's harder for me to bring in the physical details and all of those other things. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm writing, in fact, I'm going to talk about Ariel again for a minute. She has these great prompts either um, for her writing classes or I think you can sign up for Saturday morning prompts from Ariel. And in most of them, she will ask you to include something specific, include something red, include a vegetable, Mm, whatever it is. mm -hmm. And I love that because those are the things that bring us into real world when Mm. I get so caught up in relationship and process and then i have to think right but what in this room is red what room are we even (laughs) in we're people in a room so it's good practice for me
0: Yeah, that's very good. I love that because we all have our areas that are weaker or that we have to remind ourselves to do. And it is very fascinating. I'm not a therapist, but it is fascinating to me that you have this issue of leaving your body and your physicality out of your scenes sometimes when you actually are really digging into those and other parts. I'm sure you and your therapist have talked about that. (laughs) I'm very interested in that. Okay. So here's my my last three questions before you share where people can find you. So number one, are there too many memoirs? No,
1: there are absolutely not too many memoirs, because there's not too many people in the world. I mean, that's a different subject, I suppose. But um, everybody's different perspectives. I I want to hear them all. And so I want all the memoirs in the world.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love that. I want all the memoirs in the world. Perfect. I love it. Okay. And what are your favorite memoirs? So
1: I had fun. I went and pulled them off my shelf before the interview. So I'm looking at them right now. Refuge by Terry Tempest-Williams, Abandon Me and Whip Smart by Melissa Phoebos, The End of Eve I already mentioned, The Chronology of Water by Lydia Yovnevich, The Middle Place by Kelly Corrigan, and Group by Christy Tate.
0: Wow. That is an amazing and powerhouse list. Okay. What's a piece of advice you'd like to share with memoirists or writers in general that you feel would be helpful?
1: This isn't new. It's not something people haven't heard before, but I think it bears repeating. Nobody else can tell your story the way that you will write it. And even if somebody else has written a book with similar themes, which of course they have, you're the only one who can tell it your way and with how it happens to you and that is valuable and again like i said earlier the most important thing is to get the words out write Mm -hmm. it down get it out of you you can do what you want to do with it later but you, you won't have anything to to mold if you don't do the writing
0: Right, I guess. And I'm with you totally about nobody can write the story you would write the way you would write it. So totally agree with that. And that was something I had to learn in order to start writing my memoir. So where can people find you? And I'm going to link to you and and where people can find you in the show notes as well, but go ahead and, and offer where people can find you.
1: Excellent. And before I do that, I will say I'm really loving reading your memoir. It's so engaging and I just, I really love it. So I wanted to be sure to say that. Um, I can be found online at megweberwriter.com. There's links on there that, that have links about A Year of Mr. Lucky and places to purchase it on the website there's also all the beautiful blurbs that i got for that my first memoir that blew me away i was so honored to have these writers who i appreciate so much say these positive things about my book and that's the best place to find me
0: Thank you. And Meg, thank you so much for spending some time with me today and help illuminate this whole issue of memoir because I could talk about it forever. And it's just so fun to get into your head a little bit and learn about your experience with it. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.